Hello and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney, and it is day 99 of the Trump presidency. And it is clear that his first 100 days have been a disaster unless things amazingly improve by tomorrow. Uh, And I'm going to put his first 100 days in perspective a little later in the show with historian Alexis Coe. But first, I want to talk about a story that really demonstrates what has made this 100 days so awful. And let's take a moment to acknowledge just how awful it's been. It has been extraordinarily difficult for a lot of people. And if you listen to this podcast, chances are you're one of those people. We've seen so many lies from our president, from his staff, on a daily basis. It's been difficult to keep up or or even process. And yeah, we saw lies like that during the campaign, but this is the president. This is the White House. And we expect something different and something better from the president. And we should. We should continue every single day to expect better or to demand better anyway. This is day 99. We have 1,362 days left to go. And we should treat every one of those days like it's his first day on the job. Do not lose your ability to be shocked and outraged by the things he does. Don't let anyone tell you that this is normal now. Because accepting this as normal, honestly, it's giving up on America. And I'm not going to do that. Neither should you. So say it with me. This is not normal. All right, let's go back to that that story I mentioned. Uh, Trump lost another big court case this week. Judges have already blocked version two of his Muslim ban, but this week they they blocked uh, another immigration-related order. Um, And that order was to stop federal funds from going to so-called sanctuary cities. Uh, If you've listened to previous episodes of the podcast, you know that sanctuary cities basically have policies saying they won't do immigration and customs enforcement jobs for them. So a judge in the Ninth Circuit blocked Trump's order, and boy, was Trump mad. First... The Ninth Circuit rules against the ban, and now it hits again on sanctuary cities. Both ridiculous rulings. See you in the Supreme Court! My daughter's trying out a a new voice for Trump. I, I think it sounds a little bit more like Christian Bale's Batman. This was more than just a tweet. Trump also told a reporter for the Washington Examiner that he's considering breaking up the Ninth Circuit because he's so unhappy with their rulings. And here's why this story perfectly encapsulates the first 100 days of Trump. First, it starts with an anti-immigration executive order and attacks on immigrants. They're the hallmark of this administration. It's also a federal power grab. It's essentially telling cities, you have to help us enforce federal immigration law, whether you like it or not. But the most Trumpian thing about this story is his declaration that he wants to break up the Ninth Circuit. He'd need Congress to do that, by the way. Trump lost in court, and then his response is to attack the judiciary, the very branch that's supposed to keep him accountable to the Constitution, not just to criticize the decision, but to threaten to break up an entire circuit. He doesn't respect the role the judiciary has in this country. He probably doesn't understand it. This is fundamental sixth-grade civics-type stuff, and Trump just doesn't care. That's what makes him so much more dangerous, so much more 
infuriating than any other conservative president. It's not just his policies, it's his fundamental disrespect for the foundations of our democracy. 99 days down, 1,362 to go. Let's stick with immigration for a bit because there were two other big immigration stories I, I want to talk about. Uh, both of these stories were written by Elise Foley of the Huffington Post. And of course, you can find links to the stories and all the stories I talk about today on the website, which is thetrumpscorecard.org. First off is a story about immigration detention centers. Uh, now, keep in mind, these aren't prisons and they're not supposed to be prisons. They're supposed to hold immigrants, including children and families, until their cases are adjudicated. But conditions can still be awful at these detention centers. It was something of a, a scandal and a well-deserved one under the Obama administration. Now, of course, under Trump, they're poised to get even worse. The Department of Homeland Security is going to get rid of a department dedicated to making detention centers a little more humane. And it's also going to loosen regulations on new detention centers being built so they can be more prison-like. It's the kind of story that makes people who hate immigrants gleeful. But if you're the kind of person who recognized that immigrants are human beings, well, then this is an ugly direction for the country to take. The second story is about Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. They opened up a new office called the Victim of Immigration Crime Engagement, or VOICE. It's a hotline people can call into if they've been the victim of a crime by an immigrant to see that immigrant's status and where they're being held. But the real purpose of this new office isn't to serve these victims, it's to publicize crimes committed by immigrants, which is something Trump did a lot of during the campaign. You might remember during the Republican National Convention, families of victims of crimes by undocumented immigrants were, were up on stage telling their stories. And and look, of course, some immigrants commit crimes and, and these families' stories were, were tragic. But immigrants commit crimes at lower rates than the general population. And Pretending that immigrants are responsible for a disproportionate amount of crime, it only makes us less safe. But this isn't about lowering the crime rate, right? It's not about keeping us safe. It's about demonizing a group of people. Most of the people they want to demonize have brown skin. That's not a coincidence. You probably heard that Ivanka traveled to Germany this week and how she was booed by the crowd when she told them how much her father cares about average working people, which is hilarious. She also announced an international fund to help women entrepreneurs. Now, she didn't go into a, a great deal of detail about this fund. She said she'd raise the money from governments and, and private businesses. But is this an official U.S. government entity? If so, what agency controls it? Or is it some kind of private foundation? And who runs it? Who controls where the money goes? And a question for everyone who complained about the Clinton Foundation. Aren't we a little worried people might try to influence the White House by donating to this mysterious fund started by the president's daughter? But here's the big question. It's supposed to help women entrepreneurs. In other words, women like Ivanka, right? Will that make up for the huge cuts the Trump administration is making to funds that help women around the globe? See, we got more details this week about the cuts that Trump wants to make to the State Department, which includes all the funding for the Office of Women's Global Issues. And what does that office do? 
It helps send poor girls to school. It helps women farmers sell enough crops to sustain their families. It helps rich white women design and sell their own lines of handbags. No, no, wait, that's what Ivanka's fund will, will probably do. But this is going to be a pattern you'll see a lot of. Big, splashy shows of efforts that don't do a whole lot to help a whole lot of people, while the programs that do the real work are slashed to pay for more big tax cuts for the super wealthy. So they can buy more handbags. Hey, speaking of tax cuts for the super wealthy, President Trump introduced his tax reform plan this week. Well, he sort of introduced it. It wasn't really a plan so much as a a one-page bullet list of basic ideas that looked kind of like someone had turned in his economics homework too late because he stayed up all night reading Atlas Shrugged. Just as one example, it says they're going to reduce the number of tax brackets to three, 10%, 25%, and 35%. But what it doesn't say is that how much income those brackets kick in. It reduces the corporate tax rate to 15% and eliminates the estate tax, which will mean millions upon millions of dollars, if not billions, in savings directly to the Trump family. That's what corruption is, by the way. Controlling the government and using it to enrich yourself with public funds. That's what it looks like. Basically, it's another huge tax cut that will go mostly to the super rich. We, we can't afford it. It will bankrupt the country so deeply we will one day laugh about the national debt we have now. And, and that's just back of the envelope math. We can't even come up with accurate numbers. You know, we're 100 days in and they couldn't be bothered to write a tax reform proposal more than a single page long. Although that might have something to do with Trump announcing in an interview Monday that he was going to release his tax proposal Wednesday when no one on his staff had any idea it was coming. This is what it looks like when you scramble. This is what it looks like when you don't actually care about policy or about the people it affects. You know, there is one thing we can come up with a pretty good estimate of how much money families will save under President Trump's child care proposal. The Center for American Progress looked into what families in areas that swung toward Trump in the election, like Appalachia, the Midwest, how much those families would save under Trump's plan. And an average family making about $68,000 a year, spending $6,000 a year on child care, would save, wait for it, $5. $5 more a year to spend on child care. Listen, I have two kids. One of them is in public school, and child care costs are still insane. $5 doesn't cover one of their field trips. It's an insult. It's not a surprise, though, because just like Ivanka's mystery fund, the benefits all go to people like Ivanka, wealthier families who spend much more on child care than average families. And honestly, I don't even think this is a malicious choice by Trump. I think he has no idea what it means not to be able to afford decent child care or what the choices are that families have to make in this country. So... Enjoy your five bucks, America. You can go to a bar and buy yourself a beer to deal with how shitty your children are. Not my kids, though. You guys are great. Oh, man. Michael Flynn is in trouble. So, remember how a few years back he went to Russia to honor RT, the the government-run propaganda channel? And remember how he sat next to Vladimir Putin at the event? 
at the same table as Jill Stein. And remember how he got paid a bunch of money to do it? Well, turns out a Department of Defense lawyer told him he shouldn't do that without express written permission because it violates the emoluments clause of the United States Constitution. He did it anyway. And while the White House is trying to explain away hiring a corrupt loon to the most important national security post in the White House, they're refusing to hand over documents to the House Oversight Committee about the payments Flynn received from foreign governments, not just Russia, by the way. And now, uh, Press Secretary Sean Spicer, he's doing everything he can to distance the White House from Flynn. So why are they withholding these docs? Remember, Flynn wanted immunity to testify, but no one has agreed to give it to him yet. Which kind of makes you wonder, is the White House afraid of what he'd say under oath? Let's do a few quick hits. Quick hits. There's an official taxpayer-funded website at shareamerica.gov about Mar-a-Lago, the Winter White House, which, two things. First, Winter has been over for more than a month, and he's still going there most weekends, so I think we can drop the whole Winter White House charade now. And second of all, this is a private club that our president profits from, and our government has a website promoting it, or did have a website. I actually just just checked, and and shareamerica.gov took down the post and, and replaced it with an apology after so many complaints about it. But really, enough with the Winter White House thing. Quick hit. The purpose of the National Labor Relations Board is to protect workers' right to bargain. That's why it's there. Now, Republicans usually appoint board members who aren't pro-labor, of course, because they're dicks. But Trump broke some new ground this week. He appointed an actual union buster. These are people who go to places where workers are trying to organize and convinces them not to join a union. And these guys use all kinds of shifty and often illegal tactics, and guess what agency is responsible for holding them accountable when they do? The National Labor Relations Board. You see how this works? Quick hits. Trump issued an executive order calling for a review of national monuments designated since 1996, which means, naturally, that he wants to hand these lands over to drilling, mining, and fracking companies to bleed them dry. Uh, the monument that sparked this order was the Bears Ears Monument in Utah, designated by Obama, which is funny because Obama has ears as big as bears. Uh, but the land in this monument is sacred to Native tribes who fought for years to have it protected. And now Trump is going to do everything he can to make sure it's opened up to oil drilling. And he said this about it, Tremendously positive things are going to happen on that incredible land. The land's incredible. So let's set up a few dozen oil derricks. Beautiful. It'll be bigly beautiful. Quick hits. And this just broke as I was working on the podcast. It's a tweet from Reuters. Trump tells Reuters he credits North Korean leader Kim as, quote, not many 27-year-old men could go in and take over a regime, which is a really weird compliment to give a dictator who inherited his position and murdered a ton of his advisors, including his uncle, in addition to continuing the horrific repression of his own people. Trump really loves dictators, and, God, that is terrifying. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, we're right about at the 100 days mark. How's that going? 
it's mind-boggling that he's still figuring out how the presidency works now. Um, and, and, you know, that is definitely slowed him down. Um, and I don't think that he's surrounded himself with the best people. He has both houses. So legislatively, this should have been far more impressive. Um, and it hasn't been. He's also been really slow to appoint sub-cabinet positions, and that is going to increasingly become a problem. That's Alexis Ko. She's an historian, the author of The Amazing Alice and Frida Forever, which you should order on Amazon right now and which is being made into a movie, and the host of The Presidents Are People 2 podcast, which you should definitely subscribe to immediately. I asked her to come on the Trump scorecard because I wanted to put Trump's first 100 days into some historical perspective. But as she pointed out, the first 100 days are a terrible way to measure a presidency. It has limited application, and it's not entirely useful to us um, as far as judging a president. But I will say that uh, the media sure likes it. And I totally get why, because it's a nice soundbite. It's a nice number. It feels substantial, like 100 days. That's a long time, but it's actually not. Um, when you think about how long it takes for policy to take place. So how did we first start using the 100-day mark as a measure? It all started with FDR. Our 32nd president comes into office in 1933 and is met with this, you know, Great Depression. We're four years into it. Banks are failing. People are lined up, you know, for blocks to get their money out. The money isn't there. Um, Unemployment is around 20%. Like, there's an actual crisis, not only in America, but but around the world. And um, so he just starts throwing things against the wall to see what sticks. And, like, a lot doesn't. But that was necessary. It was, you know, a, a breakneck speed in order to meet real needs, like real dire needs. And um, what happened that was significant is not only uh, does, you know, he get credit for uh, – making, you know, vastly improving the situation, although, you know, it's debated whether FDR or like World War II deserve credit for this. Um, but, but what's significant most of all is that um, he brought about something that's been the goal of every president ever, which is unity, right? That he handled Congress so well. Um, and his, his campaign promises became legislation in like an unprecedented way, you know, major bills. Um, he bonded with the people, fireside chats, speeches, um, you know, but, but that's, that's like an isolated case. And since then, people have looked at the first 100 days with great expectation. Um, and I think there is uh, the obvious excitement, there's newness, but you know, I don't think it's a great gauge, but I do think it, it's an exciting time and in which you, you need to pay attention to because there's this like aura of victory. Um, there's this glow, there's excitement, there's optimism on one side. On the other side, it, you know, there's panic um, as, as there is now. But, but most of all, I, I think it's incredibly limited because so many presidencies that have turned out to be significant that have greatly um, altered course, that's happened after the first 100 days. And sometimes there's like a foundation that, that's laid, but, but not always. I asked Alexis for an example of a president who defied the pattern of his first 100 days. Her pick, the president whose legacy has gained the most from Donald Trump's win. Well, what about George W. Bush? His first 100 days, he blamed it on um, 
you know, the election and how it, it was not considered legitimate for some time. And that stalled him, right, what was going on in Florida, the recount. You know, first 100 days looked totally unimpressive to the point where he actually invited, like, all the press to come to a lunch at the White House to kind of celebrate this inaction of the first 100 days, their obsession with it, to, you know, just be upfront with how little had gotten accomplished. And then, of course, 9-11 happens, and we see his presidency completely transformed, and it becomes really significant, whereas, you know, it wasn't looking that way. It was looking like one term. It was looking, you know, not, not significant. Alexis is also working on a book about George Washington, so of course I had to ask her about the first 100 days we ever had a president. The first 100 days, you, you have to remember, like, he established the office of the presidency. It didn't exist before. In fact, a couple months before he even got there, there was debate over what to even call the head of, the, of America, um, which is, is probably actually why the vice president never has any power because John Adams was arguing for all these like monarchist titles that didn't, you know, go over well when we were trying to break away from a monarchy. Um, and I think that's what like he lost his seat at the table over that. So like, so that's an example of something that was established in the first hundred days. Vice president, not relevant. Um, the legitimacy of our our government, but more importantly of our constitution, which at the time was like a utopian document. Um, he signed bills that were major because they established um, like our system. So like the judiciary bill established the court system of the United States. He established the Department of War and Foreign Affairs. And some of these departments will go on to have you know different names later, State Department and so on. But they started with him. And another thing that's really interesting is, is much of what Washington said um, in his first hundred days wasn't necessarily codified into law. And, and particularly with Washington, what probably should have happened is so much of the presidency was based on his character that he displayed so wonderfully that um, we didn't codify things. And, and that hundred days uh, set the precedent for every president that follows in good and bad ways, like term limits, for example. They didn't come into play until they were necessary because Washington decided that, you know, a, a term was four years and then after eight years, that was good. The country could use new blood and, and also he was tired and he had given, you know, an incredible amount of his life to the service of this nation um, when he really just wanted to be like a landowner and work his plantation into you know, for upward mobility and to be in Mount Vernon, Virginia. That's all he really wanted in life. Um, so he walked away from the presidency. And after that, it was like understood that it would only be four to eight years. It wasn't until FDR that we needed an actual law saying that. Um, so this great president FDR, who we remember so fondly, like, uh, you know, almost changed the way our country functions. Like, it could have been a monarchy of sorts um, with those Roosevelt's. So, you know, maybe some of the some of the laws about, um, you know, hiring family members and allowing them access, like those should be clearer. Um, we, we rely on, on Washington being a good dude a little too much. Now, Donald Trump is no George Washington, unfortunately. Although, of course, Washington's greatness as a president is tempered by the fact that he owns slaves. But Trump, so far, his presidency is showing a lack of character of any kind. 
I, I would say that it's not the most impressive 100 days. However, there's a lot of fear-mongering going. Again, like what is our measurement? There's a lot of um, consolidation of power and making government smaller at the same time um, as, as far as like making his executive powers like being, you know, there's a consolidation of power there that's uh, worrisome. Um, but he's also baiting the world. Uh, and so it feels like our foreign policy is uh, unstable and it seems like he's not communicating well with heads of um, departments abroad. So uh, I would say in general, whatever happens after this first 100 days, we'll be able to make connections to it and say, well, this happened and, and he dropped missiles and he did this and, um, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be able to connect it. Whether uh, it will come to define his presidency, who's to say yet? We, we have to make it, you know, past past a year. And I, I, I'm not totally convinced, given the way this government looks, that he'll make it all four years. But I don't know if that's also just uh, personal investment. Maybe it's more like wishful thinking. Anyway, it's early yet. And as a historian, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm happy to comment on Trump, but I also feel like I can hardly even comment on Obama, you know, at this point. We know a lot about his presidency, but but not a ton because it takes decades for policies to, um, you know, really show themselves for what they are. However, I will say that he had a 100-day triumph very early on with the stimulus package, but but that was because he inherited a crisis, just like FDR. We were in a recession. And that's just a fascinating point. The presidents with the most productive first 100 days have been the ones who faced a crisis, whether it's the birth of the country with Washington, the Great Depression under FDR, or the Bush recession with Obama. Quick and historically important action came because the circumstances demanded it. Trump hasn't faced a crisis like that. It's funny because during the campaign, he manufactured crises that didn't exist. And he won because people believed him. But the truth is... The economy is pretty good, even if a lot of people are still struggling. And he's tried to take credit for a stock market that was already booming and jobs announcements that were already announced. But he hasn't really accomplished anything. As always, I want to end the podcast on a fun note. Uh, Trump did an interview with the Associated Press. And like all Trump interviews, there were lots of fun nuggets because anytime he talks at length, you really have no idea what's going to come out of his mouth. But the best moment wasn't something he said. Uh, according to the reporter, Trump pressed a red button on his desk. And let's all take a moment to celebrate the fact that Trump pressed a red button on his desk and we are all still alive. But anyway, he pressed this button and a butler arrived with a Coke. No one came in to see what he wanted or ask, what can I get you? This guy just came in with a Coke. Trump has a special button on his desk just for someone to bring him a Coke. Amazing. That's it for another week with our mind-bendingly ignorant president. I want to thank Alexis Ko for, for coming on to put his first 100 days in perspective. And, and really, you need to check out her podcast, Presidents Are People Too. I have learned so much for, from listening to her, and it is really entertaining. Uh, she had a lot of great stuff to say, and I, I couldn't fit it all into the podcast. So go to our Facebook page to hear some bonus content, including a story about someone named Bushrod Washington, 
that I'm pretty sure Alexis made up. And you also get to find out uh, why John Adams was called Vice Daddy. That's at facebook.com slash the Trump scorecard. I want to hear from you. Tell me what's good about the podcast and what could be better. So email me at the Trump scorecard at gmail.com or you can always find me on Twitter at Jesse Bernie. That's J E S S E B E R N E Y. And of course, visit the website at thetrumpscorecard.org for links to all the stories I discussed on the podcast today. Emoluments. 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 The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal. (laughs) 